This is the story of a haunting, of a mother haunted by the image of her cruelly murdered daughter. The story begins on January 11th, 1867, in Dayton, Ohio. Outside, the snow is falling. With it descends a solemn hush. A thick, muffling blanket lies over everything. That morning, the city's Daily Empire newspaper runs a short paragraph under the heading Local and Miscellaneous. It reads, The little boys of Dayton have a very bad habit of throwing snowballs at persons on the street. If the police would arrest a few of the offenders, the nuisance would soon be abated. But soon, Dayton's police will have a more serious crime than snowballing to contend with. Around five in the afternoon, footsteps approach the Kett family home on Oak Street. This is young Fred Kett, returning from work. He's got a job as an errand boy for a local doctor, delivering the homeopathic cures that Dr. Webster specializes in. Though he's only 10, Fred is the man of the house now. His father, John, died in the Civil War. Since his father's death, Fred has had to grow up fast. He has his own pistol to protect the family, his mother and two sisters, 13-year-old Lizzie and 18-year-old Christy. He pushes open the back door and calls out, Mama, I'm home. There's no answer. The house is ominously silent. He senses its unnatural emptiness. The wind moans in the chimney. The window panes rattle in their frames. The clock ticks heavily, like the sound of the death watch beetle in the walls. Other than that, the house is as cold and quiet as the grave. Fred goes into the kitchen. The room is dark in the winter gloom. There's no candle or lantern lit. The fire in the range has gone out. He can smell the bread that his mother baked that morning. He picks up on something else, too. A coppery scent that reminds him of the time he licked the blood from a cut on his finger. He feels his pulse quicken. His breathing grows shallow. His palms clammy with fear. Something's wrong. There's usually someone else home by now. Either his mother or one of his sisters getting supper ready. Fred sees that the door to the cellar is open. But the way is blocked. A dark shape is sprawled across the top of the stairs. It looks like a bundle of discarded clothes. The breath goes from him in a sharp gasp. There's someone lying there, their feet hanging over the stairs. It's a strange place to lie down for a nap, Fred thinks. But no. Whoever this is, they're not asleep. As Fred's eyes adapt to the darkness, he sees that the head is horribly cut. Blood is everywhere, soaking into her dress. His heart is pounding now like an army drum beating out a forced march. He recognizes that dress. It's Christy, his big sister. She's dead. And there beside her, on the kitchen floor, he sees it. The gun, his own pistol. Fred lets out a full-throated scream. He runs outside, away from the hellish vision that he will never be able to erase from his memory. As his feet kick through the icy snow, he cries out the one word that describes what he has seen. Murder!
At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secrets off their chests. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of a mother, Christine Catherine Kett, of the terrible secret she carried for 17 years, and the startling confession she made as she lay dying. It's the story, too, of her daughter, Christy, and of her son, Fred, caught in a web of lies. It's about a life brutally cut short. It's the story of a community traumatized by a vicious crime, of a murder that took place over 150 years ago, but still has the power to horrify us today. I'm Estefania Hagman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. Dayton, Ohio in 1867 is a very different place to the Dayton of today. Bear in mind, this is just two years after the end of the American Civil War. It's estimated that around 750,000 soldiers died in the war, possibly more. The social impact of so many deaths was profound. Young wives widowed, families left without fathers, deprived of their main source of income. The wholesale slaughter has left the country dazed. And when President Lincoln is assassinated at Ford's Theater in April 1865, the sense of shock deepens. Like so many towns across America, the streets of Dayton are crowded with living ghosts. The listless crowds of wounded war veterans, men missing limbs, their eyes dazed with despair as they beg for nickels, are a daily reminder of battles fought and wounds that haven't healed. A reminder, too, of the damage that one human can inflict on another. Like many German immigrants residing in Dayton, Ohio, John Kett, Christie's father, joined up to fight on the Union side, most likely serving in one of the German-speaking units that came into being. 
he was one of the many who lost his life in the conflict, leaving his wife, Christine Kett, to bring up the family on her own. It can't have been easy. John was Christine's third husband, so she's used to having a man around. More than that, John's death deprived the Kets of their main source of income, which is why everyone has to pull their weight now. Christine's namesake, 18-year-old Christy, her sister Lizzie, and even young Fred. Sometimes Christine thinks the children just don't get it, how hard she has to struggle to hold it all together, the sacrifices she has to make. It's all right for them, squandering the family money on fripperies, gadding about with their friends, laughing and acting as if they didn't have a care in the world. If only they would help out more and not answer back all the time. The Kett house is an isolated property, its nearest neighbor in any direction a good 300 yards away. It is described in one newspaper as being on a lonely commons near Wayne Street. It's a bleak location for a family home. Where they live borders the notorious Slider Town, a neighborhood of rotting slums and tumble-down shanties with a reputation for lawlessness and danger. In fact, the house the Kets live in was once a brothel. From time to time, they still get woken up in the middle of the night by drunken men, looking for a good time, unaware that the property now belongs to a respectable family. But the Kets have developed a tactic for dealing with such intruders. They throw open the window and scream, Murder! That sends them packing. It may also be one reason why Fred is not at first believed when he raises the alarm. But Fred knows what he has seen. His sister sprawled lifeless at the top of the stairs to the cellar. The blood-soaked dress. His very own pistol lying nearby. This time his cry of murder is for real. The boy goes from house to house, frantically knocking on doors until the street is filled with neighbors who've come to see what all the noise is about. Fred blurts out a confused story. Something about a gun and his sister Christy and her head smashed to smithereens. And the blood. You've never seen so much blood. It was everywhere. Clearly, the boy's been reading too many lurid dime novels, or just the newspapers, which publish stories of American Indians massacring white folk, including women and children. Sensible people dismiss it all as scaremongering. But a young kid like this, it's clearly got to him. The neighbors shake their heads in disbelief but Fred insists he's telling the truth. There's only one way to settle it. He leads them back to the house. A few brave souls go inside to investigate. When they come out, their faces are white as a sheet. One man faints, another vomits. Someone sends for the marshal, Isaac Hale. Hale is on the scene in no time at all, along with his deputy and watchman. They clear the ghoulish onlookers out of the house and begin examining the crime scene. Hale and his men have been hardened by war, but they are shocked by the amount of blood they discover. Though dry now and soaked into the boards, they can see that it is running streams down the cellar steps. They make another gruesome discovery. A fragment of skull with hair still attached is lying near the bottom of the steps. Its distance from the body graphically illustrates just how savage the attack was. In the midst of all this, Fred's mother, Christine Kett, arrives. 
she's been out shopping and is surprised to find her house overrun by neighbors. Some cast pitying glances in her direction. Others watch her closely, wondering what her reaction will be. No one dares to break the terrible news to her. No one needs to. She can see the horror written in Fred's expression. Tears streak down his face, which is as white as the snow. She begins to scream, as if she already knows what awaits her. Something bad. Something very, very bad. She rushes past them all, past her son, past her younger daughter, Lizzie, who has also arrived home by now. Marshall Hale and his men try to stop her. No mother should have to see this. But Christine Kett forces her way through into the kitchen. Her shriek of horror pierces the air. Her sobs are wild and abandoned. It's a completely different reaction to the day she was told of her husband's death. Then, she received the news in silence, keeping to herself whatever grief or bitterness she felt. When a man goes to war, his wife lives every day expecting the worst. But no mother expects to see her daughter like this. She staggers back outside, away from the horror. Her arms flail as she beats away the friends who try to console her. She refuses all solace, shaking her head and screaming out her denial. Nine! 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 No, no, no. This cannot be. Marshall Hale's men take statements from the family and neighbors. The story of the house's past as a brothel comes out. It provides Hale with one theory as to what might have happened to Christy. One of the brothel's former clients could have returned to the house, rowdy, abusive, demanding sex. And when Christy refused, he killed her. A neighbor reports seeing a suspicious man in the neighborhood that morning. It's not much to go on. There is no shortage of strange men about, given the house's proximity to Slidertown. Darkness thickens around the murder house as the neighbors begin to drift away. It's cold. There's nothing more to see. And besides, as far as anyone knows, whoever killed Christy Kett is still out there, prowling the streets looking for his next victim. It's time to get back inside and lock the doors. At first light the next day, Marshall Hale examines the area around the house. He detects two sets of footprints in the snow, cutting across the Kett's yard and ending at their door. The same footprints then lead away from the house to the fence, where he notices blood smeared on the boards at the top. Was this where Christie's murderer, or possibly murderers, made their escape? But for Marshall Hale and his men, there just isn't enough evidence to come to any firm conclusions. Not yet, at least. For now, the footsteps in the snow lead nowhere. In the meantime, there is other evidence to consider. Evidence that may point the finger closer to home. The pistol found on the floor next to Christy. Could that be the murder weapon? And if so, does that make young Fred, who the gun belongs to, the murderer? With nothing else to go on, Marshall Hale arrests 10-year-old Fred Kett and takes him in for questioning. Fred looks over his shoulder as he is led away. He can see his mother, Christine, 
lips tightly shut, staring grimly at him before she shakes her head and turns away. When he's first interrogated by Marshall Hill, Fred doesn't hide the fact that the gun is his. He seems genuinely surprised to have found it there in the kitchen. Last time he used it was to fire off a few blinks to see in the new year. In some embarrassment, Fred admits that he doesn't actually own any bullets. The gun's really just for show. After the celebrations, he carefully took it apart and cleaned it, wrapping the stock and barrel in a woolen cloth and placing them in the bottom of his trunk for safekeeping. Of course, Fred might be lying about not having any bullets. But if Fred had shot his sister, after an argument, say, it seems odd that he would leave the weapon next to her body. And according to Fred, only two people know where he had hidden the gun. Himself and Christy. Hale has Fred put in a cell while he reads the medical report from Dr. Henry Steele, the lead physician who examined the body. Steele describes finding three distinct cuts on the right side of Christie's head. Cuts, not bullet holes. Up to this point, Marshall Hale had made no assumptions about what caused the wounds. Still, the presence of the gun next to the body had at least suggested that she might have been shot. But now, the doctor concludes that the cuts were made with some kind of sharp object and that the gun was discharged close to her head only after death. Hale frowns as he reads the next part of the report. According to Dr. Steele, the cuts in the scalp were then burnt with gunpowder. There was even gunpowder on one of Christie's hands, but the doctor found no bullet in Christie's brain or anywhere in her body. In fact, Hale knows that no bullets were recovered from the crime scene at all. Dr. Steele's opinion is clear. Whatever weapon killed Christie, it was not the pistol. Then, there's the savagery of the attack. Steele describes in some detail the extensive damage done to the bones beneath the scalp. Large portions of the temporal and parietal bones, the side of the skull in other words, are smashed in or missing. It all adds up to being highly unlikely that Christie died by suicide. Besides, according to everyone who knew her, Christie was in good health and spirits at the time of her death. As the local newspaper reported it, the deceased was of excellent character. She had no trouble to vex her, but was of a lively and cheerful disposition. Finally, there's the question of the time of death. Dr. Steele estimates that it took place several hours before Fred raised the alarm at around 5 p.m. Fred claims that he was at work until then. But is the boy lying? A new possibility suggests itself to Marshall Hale. Fred Kett lost his temper with his sister, struck her on the head with something sharp, and then, realizing she was dead, tried to make it look like she killed herself with his gun. But if that was the case, why bring his own gun into it at all? Isn't it more likely to draw suspicion? Marshall Hale gets out of his chair and walks to the jail where Fred is being held. He looks at the 10-year-old in front of him. The boy seems genuinely traumatized by the horrific discovery he made. He certainly doesn't strike Hale as the kind of cold-blooded murderer to come up with such a devious plan. Marshall Hale hears one of his deputies come up behind him. 
It's the man he sent to check out Fred's alibi. The deputy confirms what Marshall Hale already suspects to be the case. At the estimated time of Christie's murder, Fred Kett was at work. With that, Fred ceases to be a suspect. He is released. Next, Hale and his men turn their attention to the mysterious stranger who some neighbors claim to have seen in the area the morning Christie was killed. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It turns out that he is not a stranger to everyone. Some of the witnesses give the man's name as Butch Hughes. Hale has heard the name before. The man has something of a reputation as a local hellraiser. He calls on Mrs. Kett to see if there is any connection between this Hughes and Christy. And now that she comes to think about it, Christine does remember her daughter mentioning a fellow named Butch Hughes. Is he the one that kills her? She asks eagerly. Hale ignores the question and asks one of his own. Was he her sweetheart? Mrs. Kett shakes her head. Christy was not being visited by any beau, she answers primly. Hale wonders how she could be so sure. Mothers don't always know what their daughters get up to. Wasn't there anyone? Mrs. Kett purses her lips. Then a strange look comes over her face. There was one fella, she admits. I never liked him. I always knew he was trouble. I forbade her from seeing him, but I believe she snuck out and stayed with him the very night before. Mrs. Kett closes her eyes and shivers. Hale asks for the young man's name. Getz, replies Mrs. Kett, fixing him with an icy stare. Anthony Getz, maybe he killed my Christie? This is the first Hale has heard of Getz. Whereas several witnesses have mentioned Hughes's name, placing him in the neighborhood the morning of Christie's murder. And the girl's mother has confirmed a connection. So they bring Butch Hughes in first. Hughes protests his innocence. Yes, he knows Christy Kett. Pretty little thing she is. He gives a smirk that suggests their relationship goes deeper than a casual acquaintance. Hale isn't sure what to make of it, but he tells Hughes to show some respect. Hasn't he heard? Christy Kett is dead. Murdered. And folks are saying that Hughes did it. Hughes's face flushes with rage. Who's saying that? Dirty, rotten liars? He was nowhere near Christy Kett's house that day, and he can prove it. He reels off a list of names, associates who will vouch for his presence on the other side of town. It takes some time, but the alibi checks out. Next, they bring in Anthony Getz, the man Mrs. Kett claims had been with her daughter the night before her death. Unlike Hughes, Getz appears to be a respectable young man. He's polite and courteous, and if anything, seems genuinely grief-stricken by the news of Christie's death. He says he's at a loss to understand why Christie's mother has taken against him. The wheels start turning in Marshall Hale's head. It seems Getz was Christie's sweetheart. 
Why else would he be so heartbroken? And why was Mrs. Kett so disapproving of the relationship? The picture she painted of Getz just doesn't match the decent young man in front of him. Perhaps there's more to Getz than meets the eye. Hale remembers the lewd smirk that Butch Hughes let slip. If something was going on between Butch and Christy, maybe Getz was jealous. That would give Getz a possible motive. There's only one problem with that theory. Like Fred Kett and Butch Hughes, Anthony Getz can provide an alibi for the time of Christie's murder. And like them, his alibi checks out. Marshall Hale is back to square one. He tries to focus on the known facts. Three blows from a sharp object. And then, once she's dead, a blank pistol apparently discharged close to her head. He keeps coming back to the gun. It feels like the key to the whole case, even though he knows it wasn't the murder weapon. According to Fred Kett, only two people knew where the gun was kept, Fred and Christy, which means that Christy must have got the gun herself. But why? Possibly there was an intruder and she fetched the gun to scare them off. As Hale's mulling over possibilities, one of his deputies comes in. He's been talking to the neighbors again. From what he hears, Mrs. Kett has a vicious temper on her. Seems none of her neighbors can stand her. And she and Christy were always at each other's throats. Marshall Hale gathers his men. It's time to pay Mrs. Kett another visit. When Christine Catherine Kett opens the door to Marshall Hale, she can tell that something has changed. The marshal is no longer looking at her with sympathy, as the mother of a homicide victim. His eyes are narrowed, his head angled upwards in disgust. She knows immediately that she's a suspect. Mrs. Kett nods as if she had been expecting this, gets her shawl, and goes with the lawman. In custody, Mrs. Kett sticks to the story she's been telling right from the start. The day Christie was murdered, she had not seen her daughter since the early morning. She ate lunch at noon, then left the house to go downtown on a shopping expedition. She presumed her daughter would be back by the time she got home. Is there anyone who can confirm this? Wonders Marshall Hale. Mrs. Kett looks at him for a long time before answering. She reckons plenty of folks saw her out and about that day, but gives no specific names. It's not much in the way of an alibi, but Hale doesn't have any evidence against her. And this is such a horrific crime to even contemplate. A mother murdering her daughter? He's going to need something more than a hunch to get a Dayton jury to convict her. He goes over her story with her again and again, piling on the pressure, trying to get her to slip up. But no, every time she recounts her movements that day, she's word perfect. Hale begins to think he's let himself get carried away. He has no option but to release Mrs. Kett. There must be some other explanation. And the theory he comes up with is... Rats. Small vermin scurrying along the basement in the Kett house. The way Hale explains it to his deputy, Christy took her brother's pistol to go shoot rats in the basement, but she slipped on the stairs and cracked open her skull. She must have passed out. And as she lay there, the blood drained from her wounds 
and she died. The pistol must have gone off as she fell, leaving gunpowder residue on her wounds. So, the way he sees it, Christy did kill herself after all. Only, it was an accident. The deputy's mouth drops open in disbelief. What about the wounds Dr. Steele described? The ones he said were caused by a sharp object? A knife or an axe, maybe? And why were there no bullets if she had gone to shoot the rats? Marshall Hale holds up his hand. He doesn't want to hear any objections. They've wasted enough time on this case as it is. If this wasn't how it happened, then... He shrugs. Maybe they will never know the truth. He turns his attention to tidying the paperwork on his desk, careful to avoid looking his deputy in the eye. If Hale doesn't believe Christine Kett killed her daughter, there are plenty who do. Her neighbors and other members of the German community, for example. When Christy is buried, her funeral is well attended. Some people go to show their respect for the deceased, some to be there for her siblings, Fred and Lizzie. Others go to see if the old witch will finally break down and confess as her daughter's casket is lowered into the ground. If so, they are disappointed. Mrs. Kett doesn't cry at the funeral. In fact, she hardly shows any emotion at all. In the words of one observer, she stands like a stone. After the funeral, the rumor that she murdered her daughter spreads far and wide. People cross the street to avoid her, hurrying on with a shiver. No one looks her in the eye. One little boy, said to be simple-minded, takes to pointing her out. You know you killed Christy, didn't you now? He asks. She never answers, just gives the boy the evil eye. It's not just her neighbor's glances that make her uncomfortable. Every time she goes into that kitchen, she can see it out of the corner of her eye. Christy's body, lying motionless at the top of the stairs to the cellar. And when she closes her eyes to block out the vision, she can hear her daughter's last breath leaving her body. She tells herself it's just the wind in the chimney, but she knows deep down it's Christy. Eventually, she can't stand it anymore. She moves out of the house on Oak Street and settles in a different neighborhood in Dayton, away from the accusing stares and malicious gossip. Maybe she's paranoid, but pretty soon she feels people are pointing her out here too. Everyone knows her name, and everyone knows what she is said to have done. Two years after Christie's death, Mrs. Kett tries to put the past behind her and remarries. Her fourth husband is a man called Louis Eisenstein. The opportunity to change her name may have been one of the attractions, but the marriage doesn't last. Maybe the new Mrs. Eisenstein has too much baggage. With three previous husbands and a daughter brutally murdered, she can't have been an easy woman to live with. She decides to quit Dayton altogether and moves out west, settling in Minnesota. But she can't escape the magnetic pull that the past has on her. Eventually, she returns to Dayton and rents a house on Nassau Street, not far from the old family home on Oak Street, where Fred, all grown up now, is still living but where his mother can't bear to set foot. Maybe she's afraid of ghosts. Or one ghost in particular.
Fred and his mother don't have an easy relationship these days. He's heard the rumors, of course, but he tries to block them out. There's a tension between them now, an unspoken accusation. He's sullen and bitter, nursing his resentments. She's sharp and complaining. In her eyes, he can do no right. And there's that temper of hers. It hasn't gotten any better over the years. She often shrieks at him like a crazy woman over the slightest perceived misdemeanor. For instance, there was that time in December 1883 when she grabbed him by the lapels and screamed in his face, I have stained my hands with blood once. I may do it again. Fred isn't sure what to make of that. Sometimes he thinks he imagined it. There are other outbursts, but she never lets anything quite so dramatic slip out again. So Fred tries to get on with being a dutiful son. It's Fred she leans on when, in January 1884, she develops a goiter, a swelling of the thyroid gland, and takes to her bed. She's 64 years old. The goiter is choking the life out of her, but she refuses to call for a doctor, not even when bowel inflammation also sets in. It's as if her body is turning against her, as if it wants nothing to do with her anymore. The end can't be far off now. On March 15, 1884, as midnight strikes, the old woman grows agitated. The family members and neighbors who are there with her in her final hours try to soothe her. But she has never been an easy woman to handle. She thrashes about as if she's trying to bat something away. Her approaching death, perhaps, or the ghost she imagines looming over her. Her voice is a hoarse whisper. Sometimes it's hard to understand what she's saying. Sometimes she can't speak at all. She drifts in and out of consciousness. Then, at half past midnight, she sits up in bed, suddenly alert. A new energy possesses her. She asks for certain documents, then sends everyone away, apart from her son, Fred. First, she hands him the documents. It's the deed to the Oak Street house. Then, she makes him promise that he won't reveal what she is about to tell him until he, too, is on his deathbed. Fred agrees. He's desperate to hear what his mother has to say. She begins to speak. Every word costs her dear, squeezed out between rasping breaths. That morning, the morning of that day, the day when it happened, 17 years ago. Christy had gone out with a girlfriend. Her mother warned her not to be long as she had chores to do. She had to be back in time to get their dinner ready. But Christy, the wicked, disobedient girl, stayed out much later than she should. The whole day was virtually gone. Thoughtless child! Did she think the world revolved around her? But she always was a selfish devil, never doing what she was told. Her mother saw red. Literally. Her vision was flooded with a boiling sea of rage. That was when she picked up the axe. Oh, Christy wasn't so proud and defiant now. She just started screaming. She was running towards the cellar when her mother struck the first blow. Even 17 years later, the story still fills Christine with rage. Her eyes stand out. She grips Fred's arm with impossible strength. The same strength with which she once gripped the axe. 
She goes on to tell him how, after Christy lay dead at the top of the cellar stairs, she hunted out Fred's gun and powder flask. It wasn't hard to figure out where he had hidden it. The rest, he can guess. How she lit some gunpowder near the dead girl's face to give the impression the gun had been fired. She swears it was never her intention to frame Fred for the murder, just to make it look like Christy had done herself in. That's why she dipped her daughter's finger in the powder, so the stupid lawman would think that she'd fired the gun herself. Fred looks at his mother in horror. So that's it. After all these years, it was her all along. And she lost her temper over an innocent outing her daughter had with a friend, over the fact that she stayed out too long and missed her chores. Now that she has unburdened her soul of its terrible secret, Christine releases her grip on his arm and collapses back on her bed. Fred turns and runs from the room. The following day, the Dayton Democrat carries news of Christine Kett's passing and of the startling confession she made that laid to rest a 17-year-old mystery. These days, Oak Street is a well-to-do avenue of architecturally diverse and desirable houses in what's known as the South Park Historic District. There is a single vacant lot on the site where the Kett family home once stood, an emptiness surrounded by houses. It's strange, as if some force of repulsion has kept the site from being built upon. Was the house that once stood there haunted? Or perhaps the ground is cursed? You don't have to believe in such things to understand why someone wouldn't want to live at that address. The violent murder that took place there can't have made it easy for anyone to get a good night's sleep under its roof. Certainly, Christine Kett had her share of nightmares there. Next week on Deathbed Confessions, we join the monster hunters of Loch Ness. We follow mysterious animal tracks and intriguing paper trails. We listen to fireside yarns and meet a cast of colorful characters, a big game hunter, a society doctor, a TV actor, a talented artist, and last but not least, a reclusive monster. As we put one of the most iconic photographs of all time under the magnifying glass, and hunt down the men suspected of faking it. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Written by Roger Morris. Supervising editor, Ali Wicker. Sound design by Matthias Torres Soleil. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. Sound supervisor Tom Pink. Edited by Rob Plummer. Mixmaster by Kean Ryan Morgan. 